Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that today we're going to be learning quite a bit. I mean, the founder that we have, I think that we're going to be really learning about persistence because he was rejected by over a hundred VCs. And nowadays, I mean, he's in a rocket ship. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Clayton Gardner. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. So originally born and raised there in Chicago. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? I had a great childhood. Uh, grew up in Chicago. The fondest memory, I'd say, was very competitive childhood. I have an older bro- brother, younger sister. My parents were very much try anything. Uh, and then figure out what you like to do, and then really hone in on that type of type of upbringing. So all sorts of sports, um, side hustles, businesses, uh, investing was one of them, which I'm sure we'll get into. Just kind of informed what I want to do with the rest of my life today. But yeah, a lot of a lot of trial and error, a lot of hobbies, a lot of interests, uh, from music to to basketball and so forth. So I'd say like a lot of create creative energy as a child. And why finance, you know, out of all sectors? I mean, out of all sectors, it sounds like finance, you know, you really went into it right away, you know, with your internship after being a pen uh, in Goldman Sachs. So, so why finance? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I started investing when I was 12. Uh, my parents, you know, opened a custodial account for me at one of these brokerages, you know, gave me a few hundred dollars. 
to buy my first two stocks. And for me at the time, it just felt like a game. Now I talked a little bit about like loving to play sports and being very competitive. It was the most adrenaline driving thing in the world because you wake up, there's a new score every day. You're playing against a bunch of different players. Each of them has their own game, their own skill set. Some are point guards, some are you know, power forwards and so forth. So it was what it was. It was like, wow, I can combine the competitive component I love about sports with making money. This sounds pretty freaking cool. Also, I would say the fact that I had had some businesses, whether it was washing bikes, you know, on my neighborhood block to, you know, starting an investing club and trying to monetize that during high school, I would say there's a lot of other entrepreneurial endeavors. So it was just, it made sense for me to want to pursue business. It was kind of the, the com- combination of, of competition uh, and, and gamesmanship and, and money and, and capitalism. And I, I thought that system had worked very well and was excited about that. So that informed why I decided to go to Penn, where I studied at Wharton. And ultimately, that kind of just reinforced the fact that I want to do this with the rest of my life. I would say at that point, I wasn't really sure what finance meant, to be totally honest, Alejandro, whether that's I didn't know what investment banking was. I didn't know what sales and trading was, all these subsectors and components. So Wharton was a great, great place to figure that out and cut my teeth. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into the evolution of my journey through finance. But still today, investing, I see it as like one of the funnest, most enjoyable. And obviously, if, you, if you're good at it, lucrative games of, of all time. So it's a huge passion. So out of all things, I mean, when, when you finish Wharton, you went uh, at it, but you went at it more on the private equity side, and uh, you did that here in the in the East Coast. But then you ended up going to the West uh, and 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 to, to to do hedge funds. I mean, you know, who would have thought going to to the West Coast to really do hedge funds? Why not staying here on the East Coast? There's not too many uh, finance firms in general out west, let alone hedge funds. So I, it was very much the specific type of firm uh, and the people at the firm that drew me out there. So. You know, the reason I started in, in New York, I mean, like most people who, you know, they graduate with a degree in economics or finance, you know, a lot of your peers, your, your professors say, hey, go to investment banking. Why? Because you get to learn how businesses work, but more specifically, you learn grit. <laughs> you're pulling all-nighters, you're building decks, you're building models, you learn a little bit of how accounting applies to the real world, how CEOs and management teams think. And so, you know, you learn grit in practice, but you also learn how some of the business world works. Um, I wasn't too particularly fond of the idea of, you know, 120 hour work weeks. And so especially ones where I would be advising, but not really responsible for the outcomes of what I was advising uh, to, to, to management teams. So what was interesting about the place I went in private equity was it was a, what's called a buy side firm, which is folks that actually own the outcomes of the decisions they're making. So similar to hedge funds, PE firms are buying entire companies. They may make money, they may lose money. It's sort of an eat where you kill type of environment. I was like, look, if I'm going to spend a couple of years working my butt off, uh, I would love to at least have something to show for it. I want my incentives to be aligned with that work um, to make sure I'm doing a great job. So I was like, okay, let's go to private equity. At least I get that buy side experience. What I learned ultimately was um, the particular firm I went to was very deep value. So there's a bunch of different flavors of investing. There's quality growth investing. I would say the inverse of that is distressed deep value investing. So you're looking for companies that are really, really financially cheap probably cheap for a reason. Either they're shrinking businesses with lots of headwinds. Maybe there's been management turnover. And uh, the particular firm I went to was exceptional at that strategy. But for me personally, it didn't really jive with my personality. I'm the type of person I get up. I want to know how can I grow and get a little bit 1% better today? How can I be positioned with growing businesses, growing sectors, um, optimism in the world, as opposed to 
it's kind of sweet, squeezing lemons, so to speak, for the last few drops of juice. And so I said, at a minimum, I need to make a shift to go see if investing in quality businesses, um, paying a reasonable price for really outstanding growth, maybe drives a little bit better. And and at the same time, I wanted more reps. And so, you know, when you're in private equity, you spend a lot of time uh, on one single business. And sometimes it can be months, often even years, that you're spending just trying to figure out if you should buy one single company. On the public markets, you know, for example, in, in equities and stocks, uh, you can be looking at multiple businesses every day, every week, every month. And so my, my personality is that I learn better by getting more reps, making mistakes, failing fast, failing early, and tweaking my process. And so I decided to move to public equities where I can get more shots on goal and, again, align my own time with quality businesses and quality uh, sectors. So transition out west to San Francisco to a firm called Farallon was amazing. because. And, and it was really for that firm. Now, I was pretty set on staying in New York, but I had a, a colleague, you know, refer me to Farallon, founded by a guy named Tom Steyer, who actually came out of uh, uh, one of Goldman's uh, desks, desks, I think it was in the 80s or 90s. A phenomenal firm, had an amazing 30-year track record, uh, multi-strategy firm, so not just public stocks, but credit, merger arbitrage, pharmaceuticals, all sorts of really interesting stuff. And so I said, one, this is a great place to see if that quality public equities investing style fits with my personality. And at a minimum, if, if it doesn't, I'm going to learn from really smart people that have a track record doing this really, really well. So then how do you uh, decide that it's time to come back to the East Coast? Well, I, I went out West, uh, I met a girl. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm still with, with her today. She's, she's fantastic. Uh, and we had both wanted to come back to the East Coast. And a lot of our friends were out here um, I, I really, really enjoyed New York and, you know, in your, when you're in your mid to late twenties, as we were discussing before the call here, uh, you know, there's, it, there's so much to do in New York. You can't do it in two years. So, uh, yeah. she wanted an opportunity to see what that was like. Um, I also had, had, you know, had approached two years at that point at Farallon. Uh, I wanted to make a move to be able to have a little bit more autonomy and, 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 uh, and call it, uh, authority over my domain. Um, you know, Farallon's a really big firm, um, with a lot of assets. I said, I kind of want to go a little bit earlier and a little bit smaller, um, smaller team, smaller asset base, and just kind of be able to own more uh, of the coverage um, of the responsibility. So things really lined up. We both had really cool opportunities open, myself and, and my partner. I, I joined an early stage fund, uh, a public equities hedge fund that had just started about a, a year or two before I joined. Uh, two other partners, they come from more of the consumer side of things, focusing on things like soft lines, you know, apparel food and beverage businesses. My background at Farallon was more on the tech side, actually, consumer internet, telecom, media. And so you know, you'll, you'll, think, you'll find a lot of New York City hedge funds and more broader, broadly investment firms tend to focus on those two sectors. It's really interesting, consumer and TMT. I think the reason is that's where a lot of the secular growth is. Like consumer spending continues to compound. Technology is reducing costs. It's highly deflationary. It's expanding access and opportunity. So most of the quote unquote good businesses, I would say, are in those two sectors. And so a lot of the profit opportunity is. So this fund was no different. They said, look, we want to be a TMT and consumer fund. We're looking for a young, hungry analyst who's good at this thing called tech. Let us focus on consumer and we can kind of cover a lot of the opportunity out there in the world. I said, that sounds pretty good. I can come in, you know, be responsible for essentially half of this billion dollar, you know, AUM fund. And and it's also very entrepreneurial. The plan was to kind of grow the business, spin out, raise more capital. So Going back to my earlier, you know, childhood, I always wanted to start my own thing. Right? I always wanted to like see what it was like to bootstrap work from the ground up. So that kind of guided our decision to to come back east, and we've been out here for for the last five years. 
Now, why, why do you think it took you so long to go at it and, and start your own business? Well, it's interesting. Actually, after we landed back in New York and I was at this fund, uh, I was only there for about seven, eight months. Uh, I quickly realized everything I'd been interested in from an entrepreneurial standpoint was true, but I didn't want to just do long, short equity investing for the rest of my life. Or I should say, I thought being an operator could add a lot more to what I wanted to get and, and leave the world with, frankly. I, you know, there's a lot of hedge funds. There's a lot of investment firms in the world, particularly the flavor that I described, consumer and TMT hedge funds. By the way, the good ones generate huge returns for their investors. Many of these investors are pension funds, endowments, and so forth. So I do believe that's a net good to society. But when I thought about my personal skill set, like what, could I, what impact could I make? It felt like it could be much, much bigger than just you know putting up returns for a subset of LPs. So my co-founder, Joe, and I, uh, who actually, you know we go back to our first day of undergrad at Wharton, uh, he had a similar kind of post-grad experience, uh, firms like Goldman and McKinsey. Uh, coincidentally, it was also at a small New York City startup hedge fund at the time. And we kind of had this light bulb moment, which was, we joined these small funds because we want to do something entrepreneurial, something a little bit risky, something early, where we could try new things, take risks. Um, but our backgrounds lend themselves to a lot more than just investing. They lend themselves to building, uh, creating from scratch. Um, and so we started thinking, what are the big problems in our lives uh, that we've been thinking about for a while that we are uniquely positioned to go solve? Um, and the one that hit us, I mean, if you just look at our backgrounds, it makes perfect sense, is how can more and more people have access to the types of things that Joe and Claire are delivering to wealthy investors? From you know my early days in distressed private equity to public equities, uh, Joe's experience advising private companies, a lot of that, pretty much all of that is inaccessible to 99.99% of the world for a handful of reasons. And so we said, the idea of democratizing access to professionally managed products with experts who've been doing this full-time for a long time is a really exciting problem and opportunity. So we took about a year off from our, our jobs. We you know, set up uh, a corporation, yeah, hired our CTO, Max, and started spitballing on ideas and ultimately landed on what we're building today, which is a company called Titan. Uh, we're, we like to say we're building the next Fidelity. Um, Fidelity is today one of the largest brokerages and, uh, and advisors in the world. The core nucleus of what it started as was a way for people to have their money managed by their smart people in a vehicle called a mutual fund, which now, by the way, commands tens of trillions of dollars. And so we said, by any measure, this is a huge problem. People are voting with their dollars. They like humans managing their money. But if you look at the younger generation that are spending hours a day on TikTok, on Instagram, et cetera, they're not adopting these products. Why is that? Either they don't want them anymore, and they're going against hundreds of years, thousands of years of human history, which says people like to trust other smart humans when it comes to financial resources. Or maybe it's something about the user experience, the costs, the accessibility of those products. So fast forward to today, you know, we have a platform live with close to a billion of AUM with 50,000 plus retail investors and across four products that we built and managed in-house. And you know, we're thinking about partnering with other, other uh, professional fund managers to be able to bring their products to retail. So yeah, it's a really exciting journey. And the problem, the core job we're solving is you know, push button, get my money managed by an expert. In what? The goal is pretty much anything from the public equities and privates that I started with in my career to, I mean, you name it, Alejandro, it could be real estate, it could be crypto, it could be fixed income. Um, it's a really exciting journey because ultimately, I think it will be a net positive to get more people into more types of uh, investments.
And how do you guys make money? What's the business model? It's a pretty simple traditional advisory model right now. So 1% of, of assets under management across each of our products. Anything about traditional mutual funds, that is actually roughly the industry average. So, uh, and then obviously there's no fees on top of that. A lot of traditional advisors will charge expense ratios, 12B1 fees. There's a lot of hidden fees in the traditional RIA world. So it's just one flat, simple fee. Um, that's if you have over $10,000 of AUM with us. Uh, for below $10,000 of assets, it's $5 a month. So it's kind of one simple fee um, for access to those four products. And yeah, we, I think a big part of the emphasis of kind of the value prop of what we're building as well is, you know, some of these products, pretty much all these products are really, really expensive, much more expensive to institutions and, and wealthy individuals today. You know, it's a typical fund, think back to like my days in private equity, public equities, it was you know, two and 20 was the standard. Now it's closer to, to one and 10, but you're talking about all in multiples higher fees than Titan is charging, uh, despite the fact that we have a mobile app, we're direct to consumer, the people that are investing in our platform feel like they know our investment team personally, even though most of our 50,000 plus investors we've never met, they're all across the country from all walks of life, from $100 on the platform to a million dollars plus. So it's really cool to be able to see, you know, we're not, we're not really innovating on pricing too much. It's like a pretty simple flat fee. Uh, but the distribution is enabling us to reach a lot of other people that we otherwise wouldn't. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So... I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, the uh, you know, for obviously a, a company like this, it requires money, right? I mean, you need money to build something like this. Now, I know that in your guys' case, being able to raise money, was not very easy at the beginning. I mean, you guys were rejected quite a bit. How many, how many times were you guys rejected by VCs at the beginning? We had a, I think Joe and I had a bet whether it was be over or under a hundred. After the first 10, we were like, this is, this is not going well, but let's, let's keep pushing on. I think Joe won that bet because uh, it was 110 plus times. We stopped counting after okay. 110. So What kept you guys going? I mean, it's unbelievable. Honestly, our, the, the family and friends was, was what, practically kept us alive, but both 
in, in good spirits to be able to, to keep our heads up and, you know, come back from a trip out West to, to Sand Hill Road and, and keep building despite getting told by, you know, some of the investors who are backed companies like, you know, Apple and Google and WhatsApp and Instagram being told this is, you know, a silly idea. But them keeping us in good spirits, our family and friends, but also we had to raise a little bit of money, right? We, we were paying ourselves the literal New York minimum wage. We had a tiny little WeWork at the time uh, uh, just to be able to not bug our roommates that we were, you know, uh, you know overstepping our boundaries, working at 3 a.m. in our apartments. And, uh, and even then we were, we were running on, on, you know, little oxygen. I think it was, you could count a few thousand dollars in the company bank account um, at that point in time. So got really creative, got really scrappy. We're super frugal all along. That's really informed how we built the company today. Um, nothing's changed. We can talk about the fundraising history. We, we have a lot more money today than we did then, but nothing's changed that, about that philosophy. I would say also there's a little bit of rebel DNA coming out of that. You know, we, 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 going back to my childhood and, and Joe's too, we're very competitive people. It's sort of like, you know, when our parents told us no, I want to go, whatever you tell me I can't do, I want to go do. <laughs> I want to do the opposite of what the authority tells me. So when people say, this, you know, active investing is dying. Everyone's shifting their money to passive investing. Haven't you guys seen the Buffett bet? Haven't you guys seen that the hedge fund manager who bet Warren Buffett, he could outperform uh, an index fund lost? Like, haven't you seen XYZ data point? Uh, we were like, yes, we have seen that. And, but here's why we as users understand the problem we're solving in a more func- uh, cognitive and emotional level, not just a functional one. And the fact that they couldn't quite see that we could have said, oh, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. We understand logically, you know, this is a bad idea. But the inner rebel in us were like, well, let's, let's actually prove it. Like, let's prove these people wrong. And like, I want, we, want, we're, we wanted to win. And, and that's, you know, that's a, perhaps at some, it's, you know, to some degree in some environments an unhealthy, uh, you know, attitude to have. But I think you need to have persistence. You have to have those kind of uh, that chip on your shoulder, because as I'm sure we'll talk about. That was the, that was just the top tip of the iceberg in terms of the obstacles we would face. I hear you. Now, a turning point was Y Combinator. So, uh, how do you guys, uh, you know, land uh, on Y Combinator? Well, I talked about us having a few thousand dollars left in the bank. So it was kind of a we had a what we called the whiteboard moment. I think it was March of of 20, uh, 2018. We had a whiteboard moment where we had a whiteboard, but in the little WeWork office, and we had had a, one of these sharpies, and we drew three columns. And we said, look, guys, we have a few thousand dollars left in the bank. We have three options. Option one, kill the company. Return them this, this few thousand dollars to our, our grandmother, our family and friends and say, sorry, we, we tried our best. Uh, speak, speaking to the, you know, the inner competitors in us, that was obviously the least attractive option. <laughs> option number two, take this money and repurpose it, the proverbial pivot. So, oh, let's go try to think of another idea. I've learned historically trying to sit in the room and think of good startup ideas is not a way to find a good startup idea. You got to start with a user problem you're passionate about. And this is by far the most passionate problem we've ever been passionate about. Uh, so it, it, there was no other problems that jumped to our mind. So we said, okay, not a great idea to pivot without knowing what we're pivoting to. The third option was stretch this as far as humanly possible and apply one more time to this accelerator out west called Y Combinator. For what it's worth, in addition to those 110 VC rejections, we had also gotten rejected by Y Combinator twice. <laughs> so this is like third time's a charm. We're running out of money. We've been rejected by world's best investors. But here's this accelerator that's spawned the Dropboxes and the Stripes and the Airbnbs. Other ideas that were also rejected a lot of times by smart people. So that these people will probably 
hopefully give us one more shot. So we applied to Y Combinator. We chose that third option on the whiteboard. We got an interview. So we flew out west and uh, we got in. And so, you know, just like that, that was like the most, probably one of the most transformative moments in the company because we went from having a few thousand dollars in the bank to, you know, now 120,000. That was what the YC check was when you get into the program. Every single week during that three month, you know, summer program out west, you meet with your advisors, what's called group office hours. They give you advice. Every, again, speaking to the competitors in us, every week we'd have our advisor, we call them, you know, our coaches say, hey coach, how, 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 you know, how high do we need to jump this week? They say, you need to jump four feet. We come back the next week, we'd have jumped six feet. So it was just that rolling thunder of competitiveness, focus. You know, you're in a house in a suburb in Sleepy Palo Alto with your SOs across the country. It was like the perfect breeding ground for like competitive, hungry people with a ship on their shoulder and a little bit of money to, to kickstart the, the wheels. And um, yeah, fast forward a few months, we ended up being, I think, one of the number one companies in the in the batch of, of I think it was 9,000 plus that had applied ultimately. So transformative moment, got amazing investors at that point from the founders of Y Combinator, folks like Paul Graham, Sam Altman, and others, um, a, a couple of great institutional firms. And it was a big stamp of approval, I think. Um, you know, things didn't get any easier after that, right? You have the TechCrunch announcement. Yay, surprise, you know, we're, we're validated. And then you have the, what they call the trough of sorrow, which is yeah. the new cycle moves on. There's another batch of companies that gets headlines and, you know, your user growth slows, your asset growth slows, you're forced to get back to building. And so, um, but that was a big, I would say a big milestone on the journey so far. Now, in, in your guys' case, obviously, I mean, you were now riding the wave, uh, you had the validation but it sounds like, you know, there was a, 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 a pivotal moment, you know, where the company needed heart surgery because of uh, the broker dealer. I mean, obviously, for the people that are listening, you know, broker dealers are, those licenses are very high in demand, especially when you're in the finance uh, sector. You need that really to, to operate. But um, in this case, it sounds like you guys needed to, uh, to, to, to course correct and kind of like redesign the path forward. So what happened there? Yeah, so you described it really, really well. Uh, a broker dealer is the heart and the soul of an investment advisor. It's how ultimately you you bring your product to investors and let them buy, sell, you know, uh, and execute trades. We got you know we got the seed round from from Y Combinator. Uh, it was mid, I think fall 2018, early 2019. We get a, a quick heads up from you know the, the folks at our broker dealer uh, saying you know there was an acquisition. And that that heart would need to get, quote unquote, ripped out of Titan uh, and, and moved to another patient. So we without a heart, and without a soul, uh, we couldn't you know, principally function for, for six months. Uh, we had two engineers at the time, our CTO, Max, and an early engineer of ours. We uh, went heads down and focused on let's find another heart and do this transplant as fast as we can while our vitals are still you know, somewhat intact. Um, from a from a front end com, uh, you know customer standpoint, what that meant is you didn't really see any changes in the app for about six months. In a world where Facebook, Instagram, every every company is shipping app updates, bug fixes, performance improvements on a basically a daily or weekly basis, you know, to have a new, innovative, fast moving company not really evolve for six months was like pretty devastating. It was one of those things where we didn't really have an option. We had as limited resourcing, re, uh, engineering resourcing as we as you could. So, you know, it, it, we, we understood at the time why that happened. You know, that that part ultimately went on to to be transplanted to you know the company Square and their business Cash App. So they've done amazing things 
with uh, w- w- with that business um, and, and that growth. But you know, ultimately, it added just another, I would say, battle scars. Uh, you know, we kind of licked our wounds. Ultimately, did that that transplant successfully. Um, it was a good learning experience. Also, as an early stage startup, you really want to make sure you minimize, you know, the different fa- uh, ways things can uh, faults can arise. Right? You want to reduce dependencies. It's hard enough to find something people are going to want and pay you for. That's that is, I think it's something like probably less than ten percent of startups even find product market fit. So, once you have product market fit, you're you know that's the most important thing. The next thing is make sure you can keep it. <laughs> make sure the other stakeholders from your AWS to your payment processor, make sure you have a plan in place. And it sounds convenient to say because you know there's always other, another fire burning and you don't have infinite time and resources to, to focus on 20 different alternatives, but it's a good lesson for us to not, not put all your, all your eggs in one basket. Now, obviously you guys say we're able to weather that storm and, and recently too, you announced a pretty big series B. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? So publicly, we've, we've announced raising uh, it was roughly $75 million uh, to date. We've been around, uh, we launched the, the company about four years ago. So our most recent round uh, from Andreessen Horowitz uh, was a roughly $60 million Series B. Uh, we raised that in, in May of 2021. And what's interesting about fundraising, uh, Alejandro, is, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of the, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're, you're prepping for the homecoming dance, right? It's, uh, you know, the most sought after people. Uh, uh, you know, are, are often the people that don't need to be sought after, right? And the people that want to be asked out are usually, you know, they're not asked out for a reason. And so it's one of those things where, you know, for, from a fundraising standpoint, uh, when you need money, that's when people are least likely to give it to you, ironically. It's when you don't need money, when you're probably going to have a lot of checks thrown at you. And the reason is pretty simple. People want to invest in things that are doing well, that are growing. Uh, if you're growing and doing well, ostensibly, you're on a pretty good path. You have some leverage. Uh, you have some visibility. You can raise on your terms. You have negotiating leverage. And so it's one of those things where you kind of, you realize how the game is played. And there's a little bit of a song and dance in terms of figuring out that fundraising process. But that's the one part of our journey that's gotten really, really uh, relatively easy compared to things like building things users want. Um, Because we've been able to focus and find product market fit and really expand upon that, each fundraising round has happened in a quicker period of time with a fewer number of people involved with less process, with more focus. And every round is, has, has led to just more and more exceptional people on board. So yeah, and you said Andreessen Horowitz joined our board. Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, that was like a 48-hour process to get that all buttoned up. So wow. night and day from the you know the six-month roadshow Joe and I were doing with those, those the Silicon Valley VCs in the early days. And just, again, a testament to build something people want, focus on growing. The score kind of takes care of itself from that standpoint. And you were alluding to it that you guys raised the um, this last round on 2021. I'm sure that 2020 really changed the you know many things for you guys. I mean, definitely for the world with COVID. You know, whether that was around culture or around the business, because especially when it came to investing, you know, we saw a lot of uh, craziness happening. You know, with the GameStop, the Wall Street bets, all of that kind of stuff. So, how do you think? Um, you know, what what was the Titan? that went into 2020 and what was the Titan that came out of 2020? Sure. I mean, early 2020, uh, what immediately jumps to mind is, is COVID, obviously. And, you know, we, we were a little bit, I won't say, uh, uh, I won't say having, you know, seen the future, but I think fortunate that we knew the risk reward or could assess some of the risk reward of that scenario pretty early as a business. So, you know, we went remote in February 
of that year. If you remember, it was really early to mid-March 2020 where, you know, all the headlines started talking about COVID. People started went, working from home. The world went remote. And then it was like the world shut down in a matter of days. Um, fortunately, by being a couple of weeks ahead of that and working remote, we sort of got, got, we got to take stock of, you know, what was our game plan? You know, thinking back to our earlier roots, we had never had the money to even hire people, let alone lay them off. So the idea of if, if, if the worst case scenario happens and this global pandemic really spreads, us having to do the opposite, having to lay people off, people, people that work so hard uh, that, and, and stuck with us so long through so many ups and downs from fundraising to the heart surgery I described was like unacceptable for us as a business. So I would say culturally, the fact that it was so hard to raise money made us very, very frugal and very cost conscious, very people focused, people first. So we we took our salaries down to the New York City minimum wage at that point in time. Uh, we didn't lay anyone off. Uh, we cut our OPEX uh, well ahead of uh, when we needed to and really hunkered down and prepared for the worst. And so as 2020 went on, as the world shut down, people were figuring this whole COVID thing out. We re- well, a lot of other people were playing, you know, I, I would describe as defense. Um, figuring out how to cut costs, how to pull back marketing spend, uh, we were able to go the opposite way and, and play, play aggressive offense. Um, and that meant making our first few hires in places like customer service uh, and, and a few other engineers. Um, being able to ship features like instant deposits, right? When the world is, is entering COVID, if you remember, the market was up five, down 5% a day. In worlds like that, we, we really accelerated product development around ways people could capitalize on that, you know? And so... By getting your money invested in minutes instead of days via, for example, this feature we launched called, called Instant Deposits, Instant Investment, that was an example of something that we shipped aggressively into that environment that let, instead of people pulling their money out and moving to cash and saying, I need to protect my life savings, people were as confident enough in Titan to use that feature and say, I'm going to be aggressive and take advantage of these dips, take advantage of this volatility. So from a people standpoint, from a cost standpoint, from a, a product development standpoint, you know, it's sort of like the you know, prepared mind. It's like planning is useless, but, but plans are useless, but planning is everything. I think prepared minds were, were, were very fortunate heading into that. Um, obviously, it was a huge global crisis, but the silver lining was um, for our business, um, it, proved, it, it proved that that frugal mindset uh, was, was worthwhile. So it, it, was a, it was a good transition, uh, you acknowledge, because between that early heart surgery I described and the Series B was a really monumental period of 2020. And, and ultimately, that growth, that focus was what enabled us to raise the Series A uh, from General Catalyst in the fall. So I'd say from, from Y Combinator, while that was the big moment in 2018, it was kind of a two-year lull. I wouldn't call, call it a lull, but a two-year period where we had a lot of ups and downs that you won't read about in the press or in the headlines. But 2020 was so formative, and we raised our first priced equity round with our Series A. We grew you know, significantly. It was 20-plus percent every month. Um, and 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 really, you know, uh, we're able to to focus on on what Titan's doing for customers. Now, talking about what Titan is doing for customers, and talking about also the future. Imagine you go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world maybe like five years later where the vision of Titan is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, the world look. So you wake up, you open your mobile app. We at five years. I was going to say maybe it's your VR headset, uh, depending on what Zuckerberg's cooking up. But let's say you open your <laughs> VR headset, you open your mobile phone, you see the Titan logo on whatever this UI is. You click it, and it's effectively push button. Get invested with the smartest money managers in the world. That's it. That's the vision. So 
that's you can think about that. There's two sides of that. There's hopefully millions of customers that are expressing that push button, get invested with experts. On the other side of that is experts from every walk of life, from every asset class, from every part of the world. So you have a guy or a girl managing your money in real estate, managing your money in public equities, managing your crypto portfolio. Maybe they have you invested in a portfolio of NFTs, as controversial as that may sound, a portfolio of fixed income, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, you can also go into art, wine, collectibles, and so forth. So many, many assets across the world are going to be investable. Some of them I'm a big believer in. Others, I think, are more speculative or more collectible or more of novelty in nature. But I think what the world needs is more people being able to access the authorities in those investing asset classes. And the goal of Titan in five years is you wake up, you have the easiest way to connect and build relationships with those authorities. Very cool. Now, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, back to 2017. When you are thinking like, what are we going to be launching here? Imagine you had the opportunity of sitting down with your younger self and perhaps, you know, with, with your founders too, co-founders, and you had the opportunity of um, giving yourself one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I'll say something that's uh, it's very, it's very YC. It, it's the core essence of their motto. But uh, I, I've never heard better advice in my life, which is make something people want. The amount of times that that core piece of advice, and I'll extend that maybe more broadly, uh, focus on make something stakeholders want. So whether that's uh, employees, like what culture, what compensation structure, what career growth and ladder, whether it's to our customers, what features, what products do they want? Uh, whether it's to our investors, understanding the narrative of how this company could, should look, how to present that, how to pitch that, how to communicate that to the world. And just focusing on asking the stakeholder how do you view the world internalizing that and then iterating and acting on it is like by far the most useful advice. I mean, that's how we found product market fit. It was Clay, Joe, Max, you know, stop sitting in a room trying to think of smart startup ideas, go out in the world, ask people about their problems, jot them down, hack something together, ship it, iterate, learn, A-B test. And uh, that also applied to the investing or the, the fundraising journey. Just Clay, Joe, Max, don't sit in a room and create a really nice McKinsey. You know, I, I, I give Joe, I, you know, McKinsey's an amazing firm. I give Joe, crap about this all the time because you know we were sitting here thinking this perfectly beautifully designed deck is gonna it's we're gonna raise so much money it's gonna be amazing um crickets right and it's because you're not focusing on what investors want to see and not what they want to see but how to speak their language so just getting out in the world and experimenting and iterating is um you know frankly i think that's where a lot of public larger companies go wrong is you kind of lose that ability to innovate and iterate and ship and that's why I love, you know, Bezos' saying of, you know, kind of time to invent and wander. I think, like, uh, you want time to invent and wander, but you need to be able to fail and experiment. And so I'd say making something people want or making, you know, understanding, uh, you know, stakeholders and investors, customers, employees, and, and just listening. And I think uh, a there's a lot of impetus, especially from the world I come from in finance, to control, to like, do, to act. And I think a lot of time the best inaction is the best action is inaction. It's just kind of sitting back and absorbing and listening to others and letting that inform what you do. Wow. I love that. The best action is inaction. Very profound. I, I love that, Clay. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, I'll do a shameless plug. Everyone should check out Titan, uh, titan.com. Uh, you can reach 
our investor relations team, uh, myself, any of our, of our team through the app. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I, I don't post a lot. I, I consume it daily. I think it's an amazing source of information, but you'll see Titan and myself do occasionally post. So you can find me on Twitter. My, my handle is at virtual clay. Um, and yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, Andre. Amazing. Thank you so much, Clay, for being on the Dealmaker Show today. What an honor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.